Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always, we've made them one that writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet roads of history. Neil, how's it going? Well, like how I felt with most episodes this season, I'm having these uh, complicated feelings of losing something dear to me, but also, you know, like a sense of accomplishment that we've done what we set out to do, Yusef. You know, we've reached the last president remaining. You know, we've reached of, the mountaintop. Yeah, yeah. Outside of those two who will rematch uh, this year, um, but you know, you've got me in the feels. I'm gonna miss hearing your your current events of election years, and you know, kind of weaving our way through history together. It's truly been a, a fantastic time doing this podcast with you. You're gonna miss my cynical views and <laughs> my sometimes landing a joke. And every now and again, having a good point and then having to edit 99% of my rants because it's just, I just go for too long and you're too nice to interrupt me. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to miss that as well. No, it's not every once in a while. I truly have appreciated everything you've done <laughs> with the podcast. It's just, it's just weird that, yeah, we've been at it for, for a bit now and it's just like, okay. We, there's yeah, no, it's, it's honestly like, it is very baffling that I feel like. When we set out to do it, it felt like almost like a year endeavor, almost yeah. like that was yeah. Let's just, just knock it off in a year. And obviously, life gets in the way, and uh, we started taking breaks in between seasons. We created the the concept of seasons, and then yeah, it's it was a um, lot of work. It was more work than I gave it credit for. I think when yeah. the, <laughs> when we first started it, um, and now almost what almost three years now. Yeah, almost three years. 2021, I think, is when we started, and now here we are. Technically, the last president that we're going to discuss is not the last president, because technically he's not the last president. He is our very first president, George Washington. And the music play. The year is 1789, the first American novel, The Power of Sympathy or the Triumph of Nature Founded in Truth, is printed in Boston, Massachusetts. The anonymous author at the time is actually credited to William Hill Brown. Georgetown University is founded in Georgetown, Maryland, part of modern-day Washington, D.C., as the first Roman Catholic college in the United States. The French Revolution is in full swing as major events are occurring throughout the year, including the Storm of Bastille. Pope Pius VI creates the first diocese in the United States at Baltimore and appoints John Carroll the first Roman Catholic bishop in the United States. A national Thanksgiving Day is observed in the United States as it's recommended by President George Washington and approved by the Congress. And finally, the 1788 to 1789 United States presidential elections and House of Representatives elections are held with George Washington unanimously elected the first president of the United States by the United States Electoral College. Ooh, that last one killed me, huh? All right, take it away, Neil. Beautiful. So we started this podcast with the second president, John Adams, and here we are almost three years later, ending it with our first president. You know, this wasn't 
you know, part of some grand plan I had back in 2021 when we got going, but it does feel a bit fitting to end with a guy who stopped, who started it all on George. When I picked Adams to start the pod, I remember that I think I was trying to be clever and fresh in some way. Like, you know, people would be intrigued with the fact that we were starting at number two with a man who, you know, hated being number two all throughout his career. Um, hmm. Always a runner up to Washington, Jefferson, and Hamilton and prestige while he was alive and really even more so after he died. Um, you know, I was intrigued with the chip that Adams had on his shoulder. And to me, I get the sense that Washington was very aware that he was, you know, this larger than life figure of the time. You know, you can't really dispute the claim that no other president was as respected as Washington during their time as president. He united a brand new nation behind his aura of authority and integrity as a human being. And this brand that Washington cultivates stands in stark contrast with how we've come to terms with most of these presidents, Yousef. Time and again, with a few exceptions, we've come away disappointed with peeling back the layers of these people. At least I have, anyway. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine our episodes only affirmed your understanding of world leaders in just human <laughs> behavior in general. What do you think on that? There hasn't been no doubt of who uh, <laughs> who our presidents are, uh, especially after discussing most, if not all of them for now. Right. Like ones who or, you know, people in general, like I said, in the human behavior sense, you know, you continuously taking the path of least resistance to, you know, more often than not make the convenient choice instead of the right choice. Um, you know, it can't be that this is just something that only leaders do in a roundabout way. You know, we all do it together as a society. You know, we watched as a nation as all of continental Europe fell to Germany and almost brought down Britain and Russia in World War II, and the majority of Americans were relatively fine in doing nothing about it until we were attacked ourselves. Yeah. I mean, there are loads of examples of our society at large. You know, to be fair, you can also find pluralities of people who are ahead of their time as well. But, you know, still, majority at large, you know, not standing up for what's right throughout our history. You know, should we expect our leaders to reflect any higher moralistic values than the society that shaped them? I think that I had a, like a hard, like in, like in asking that question, my answer, you know, before this podcast was yes, but more and more, I, I find myself trying to be, you know, forgiving um, of these men that I've been so disappointed with at some points. You know, maybe I've been thinking about presidents wrong this entire time. You know, maybe for the most part, historical figures are all more alike than we think, and their decisions only reflect their interpretation and obtaining the people and resources needed to keep their power. Obviously, you know, that's a simplistically cynical take, but I can't help but go down lately of asking the question, you know, if are people inherently good? <laughs> I know it's something you and I briefly talked about outside of the podcast, but yeah, you know, I don't hear that question really ever being asked. Um, yeah, know, I, feel, I mean, uh, the, the straightforward answer is yes, people are inherently good. But people that seek, retain, and abuse power or not. And those are the only ones that actually make it to the mountaintop. A very rare few cases in between. And that's the men that have etched their names in, in history books as the presidents of the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But to me, it's like, again, I'm just getting more cynical. Like, you need people to back up 
these people as well. You know, there just always seems to be a justification offer for groups of people inflicting pain and suffering onto others. Um, you know, if, if only X thing would happen and this other group would comply, then we would have peace. But let's be real, everything I see in the news and on social media platforms and in history books shows that's just not human nature. You know, we're driven towards conflicts that is immoral. And when we started this podcast, I felt fairly optimistic as a person in thinking about future progress in the leaders that we had, you know, um, which is wild considering the year 2020 had just happened. Um, but our 60 or so episodes of research, discussions, and watching the world I live in unfold in that time span has, you know, unfortunately done a lot to suck the optimism out of me for politics and confidence in governance. Maybe that's what happens when you reach your 30s and many viewers are just, you know, rolling their eyes right now, or listeners, <laughs> I should say. But, you know, I don't know. But the reason I'm turning this into like a moral philosophy episode currently is because I'd I want to have some kind of thematic takeaway of ideas coming out of this podcast that we've been working towards, you know, you know, some of them have been that, you know, fortunate timing can be everything in someone's life. You know, luck is yeah. a very real thing. You know, if if your most significant achievement as president is that you raised or lower tariffs, you're probably not going to be remembered in history very well. That's also, I feel like, a lesson we learned <laughs> here. I definitely learned about tariffs. That's definitely one of my... <laughs> main takeaways <laughs> yeah all kidding aside you know washington gives us i think one last opportunity in this podcast to get some good and happy feelings about our country before we sign off here that we actually have a shared sense of values and admiration for what this country says it's trying to achieve in its founding documents right off the bat you know what do most people know about washington you know commander of the continental army during the revolutionary war First president, he's on the dollar bill, has thousands of tributes to his legacy all across the country. You know, there's a whole state that I currently live in right now named after him. Um, and the flag is literally just a green flag with the space. Ohio? With it. <laughs> what? Ohio? No, Washington. <laughs> oh, shit, I'm done. <laughs> you got to edit that part out. I'm like, shit. No, it's staying in. Staying in. Do not leave that in. It's so too funny. I'm too gullible sometimes with that. Um, but, you know, this must be a great man, right? Like, at least in certain respects, to be the first president of the currently oldest democracy in the world. And a great With rapper. You know, you gotta you gotta say that he's a great rapper too, and I and this okay okay dancer. You don't you don't you can't say anything about it. All right, you already. Uh, we can't have another Hamilton talk. Nope. No, we're not talking about Hamilton. Democratic governance. Even in the only white men who own property form of 1789, almost never happened. You know, the whole world at that point was basically colonized by monarchs from countries that were thousands of, thousands of miles away. You know, it makes complete sense that after 200 years or so of settlers and slaves working to extract resources for the betterment of an imperial country taking place in North America, that societal movements would develop that objected to having no power over the laws that they were governed under. This movement that specifically happens in the 13 colonies of North America in the mid-1700s is well-known. You know, I'm not going to take us through a history of the lead-up to the Revolutionary War and the events of the conflict, but I do want to start with an obvious question of, you know, where does Washington really fit into all of this? You know, what's his beef with Great Britain? And, you know, every other founder has a bit of a, a fiery activist reputation of them, at, at least on paper. 
you know, the, the founders era of presidents in particular chose to flex their activism through what they wrote down and published to the general public. So, you know, like Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were all at the top of the, of the food chain when it came to publishing, you know, their philosophies on democratic governance, the liberties that people should enjoy, uh, you know, the governing structures that would be most effective to put in place to have a more equal, thriving society for the, the people they wanted to have, you know, equality. Uh, it's a very selective thing still. But, you know, Washington is nowhere to be found really more so in the work of forming the documents that become the foundation for American governance. And it's pretty weird that someone who had, you know, pretty little to contribute in deciding the core founding principles of our government got to be our first president, followed up by all the most skilled philosophical and diplomatic leaders at the time. You know, it's not just weird that he got to be first president either, but then no one dared challenge him for the job in either of his elections. His esteem and prestige was second to none in a brand new nation with no history of leaders behind it. So obviously, being the commander who beat Great Britain's military gets you to high places in this new nation. But, mm -hmm. you know, that alone, I think, can't explain why he has the choice to essentially be king of this country. But before we get there, let's just get a foundation. Yeah, I mean, it's I, uh, before we get there, but I, mm -hmm. I do want to do, do the caveat of... Uh, especially back then, and I think arguably still today, if you have the vote or the the confidence in the in the in the power of the army, you have you have the share essentially. Yeah. So it's not it's not only that the people around him recognized him as the one that brought us our freedom because he was a general. Um, But also it was like, oh, he's the one that has all the people with the guns. So I don't, maybe we should not challenge his position to be the first president. Oh, you really think that he like would have threatened military action on people? That you're going to claim for that? I that am not saying that, but if I was there at the time, <laughs> I, would, I probably would have been a slave or something like that. But if I would have been a white man at that time, I would have been like, hey. Georgie wants to run. I'm going to let him run. I am not going to go like, hey, Georgie, thank you for our country. Uh, how about you and your boys sit back and I'm going to sit in the chair. Maybe I'll give you a cabinet position or something like that. You know, I wouldn't have dared say that to Georgie. I'm just, you know, putting it out there. Okay. All right. That's a, that's, that, was a, that was a funny, um, funny point. Um, yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I, There, there are like you know I'm I'm obviously gonna have some issues with Washington like everybody but I, I think that that's I don't know I think yeah given his character I would even be even Lincoln even Lincoln had fear that our boy Grant was gonna take over the seat why because he had the army behind him because he had the name recognition and the prestige of war. So even yeah. Lincoln had that fear. So imagine all those dweebs back then that yeah. didn't, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good term for them because they definitely, I mean, even Washington was like just taller than everybody too, you know. So it was just like, it was like a physical thing, I feel like, at the same time. It's like. Is that why DeSantis is wearing, wearing like insoles and stuff like that? <laughs> he just, he needs to be tall like Washington. Yeah, it certainly helps. I mean, I don't know how that got out, or if it's just like obvious, you can just see it. Or it's whatever. so obvious. 
<laughs> but it's not a good look. Um, before we get there, though, you know, let's get a foundation for why Washington even cares about being involved in the American Revolution in the first place. You know, he's born in Virginia to a prominent colonial family that were, you know, wealthy planters. His father, Augustine, owned several plantations that were passed down to him. Where, from- do you know where they're from? Sorry to interrupt you. Are they from Britain or from somewhere? No, Augustine is born in Virginia, in Virginia, and even his father is born in Virginia. So they're like the OGs. Yeah, but, okay, but where they come from, you know? Oh, oh, I don't know, somewhere in Britain. I don't know. <laughs> so so they're from Britain. So they are yes, out, they outskirts are. of Britain, like, uh, like outsiders of Britain that revolu- like did a revol- revolution against Britain, essentially. Right, right. But they, yeah, they were descendants of like British people, yes. Okay. And so, yeah, Augustine owned several plantations um, passed down to him from, you know, the first generations of settlers who quickly acted to make money off the land. Augustine died when George was just 11 years old. And so he already had land passed down to him to continue the plantation life as a kid. Follow this up with, you know, more family members that, that die. And Washington is already, you know, wealthy and established by the time he reaches adulthood. Life under British rule seems pretty sweet for him and his family. You know, they have more than enough resources to grow their business, their business and their wealth. You know, Washington, though, doesn't just want a life of a plantation owner. He wants to rise up the ranks of British society in multiple lanes of prestige. And his father's death makes that aspiration much more difficult because you know he can no longer receive a formal education in England like his brothers had. This hardship, and put it in quotations, you know, follows or Washington most noticeably in his political career and ties into what I was saying earlier in this, you know, lack in his lack of participation for laying the intellectual groundwork for the laws our nation was built upon. You know, he he carries his more lackluster education in comparison to his peers as like a chip on his shoulder and as someone very sensitive to it. You know, as an early adult, he finds his first job outside of working a plantation as a land surveyor and quickly finds interest in establishing a, a military career as the British are starting to expand west into the Ohio Valley region. And so here was Washington's opportunity to gain esteem without receiving a top education, to rise through the ranks of the most powerful military in the world where everyone would have to show him the utmost respect. And so Washington takes full advantage of the growing tension between the Brent, the French and the British over the surrounding lands of what we now know as Pittsburgh. In the 1750s, no one really knew what to do on deciding who had a claim to this region because, of course, they couldn't you know, let the people already living there be. You know, The understanding of the time was that everything east of the Appalachian Mountains and north of Florida would be under British control, and the French would take land west of the Appalachian Mountains. But it gets tricky in western Pennsylvania because it's less clear if the hilly terrain there counts in this understanding, and especially as the land starts to get very flat going into Ohio. And so both sides felt they could have some kind of claim over it. And Washington's very young heading into this conflict. You know, at just 21, he got his first assignment to travel as a special envoy and deliver a message to the French to vacate the area. And on his way, 
there he gets captured by the French, but is actually treated, you know, very well by them. They, del- you know, they deliver the message he has to the French commander is intended for and allow him to shelter with them while waiting for the response. Of course, you know, they refuse to leave, but they supply Washington with, you know, food and clothes to get back to Virginia through the middle of the winter in which, by the way, he still barely makes it back alive due to the harsh conditions. Most people usually would wait until the spring to make that kind of trek back, but he was so focused on, you know, building a military career that, you know, he decided to rush back to Virginia to give, you know, to first impress his commanders and kind of get an edge up on getting information back there in a more speedy time frame. And so those details I know sound boring and irrelevant, but just trust me, there is a reason why I'm including them here because Washington just six months later returns, but this time as a colonel and second in command of 300 men to force the French out. And when he comes across a French party of around 50 men carrying a diplomatic message to the British, Washington and his men conduct themselves you know, in like the, in the exact opposite manner as the French force that found him the year prior. They brutally killing, you know, many of the men, including the commander, carrying the diplomatic message. This is how the French and Indian War begins. A 21-year-old George Washington, I guess, accidentally starts an entire colonial war <laughs> <laughs> to try to make a name for himself. Um, it's weird. It sounds like something Teddy would, would, would have dreamed of doing. Like, you know, <laughs> that he wanted to be in so many wars in his life. Yeah. You're starting a random war between two great nations at the time. Yeah. Well, probably they I guess they're great still, but yeah, they're greater back then. Right. Like the two, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um no, he definitely would have I think relished the chance, but uh yeah. Yeah, unfortunately for him, he only got to just like charge up a hill and I think yeah. <laughs> so but you know, yeah, Washington again nearly dies just a year into the conflict, um, trying to take Fort Duquesne, which, again, is another name for Pittsburgh at the time, but is actually able to redeem himself for living through the massacre and effectively leading a retreat where one-third of his army was able to survive. Um, but during that during that battle, like he had two horses shot out from under him. It was like literally, it was really a miracle that he lived. So Washington remained in the conflict for four more years, desperately trying to rise in the military ranks and be part of the regular British army to gain a royal commission. Time and again, he was denied, even as he had proven himself as a capable leader that eventually helped the British to outlast the French and defend against Native American attacks. And so by 1858, the British mostly had control of the entire Ohio Valley region, and Washington still didn't have a royal commission to show for it. So he realized after being passed up for greater promotion and constantly being put into a tense struggle with other commanders on who maintained the higher rank to influence the strategy of the war, Great Britain didn't really consider him to be truly British or worthy of, of better treatment. That because he was born in the colonies, he was considered a second-tier British citizen. And he's never going to be welcomed into the club of true British... Uh, poor plantation owner, George <laughs> Washington. He's not it's seen as, as, a, as a full human being. This is a very... Well, to, in George's head, this is a very sad sob story in his oh, life. Oh, <laughs> no. Georgie. So, here were the seeds of... Washington's beef 
with the home country. You know, he just wanted to live a life of being loved and respected like anyone else. <laughs> and instead, he saw his time and service to his country full of unequal treatment and who was given power and prestige. He resigned from the army after serving for six years and went back to his plantations, bitter about the experience as a, as a whole. But don't worry, it doesn't take that long to recover. You know, as a year later, he married Martha Custis, a very wealthy widow of a former plantation owner who had all the charm, grace, and intelligence that Washington was looking for in, in cultivating the lifestyle he wanted. And so this marriage cements George into the elite of the elite social hierarchy of Virginia as one of the wealthiest people in the state. He renovates... So he so he was already of of money because a plantation owner is not cheap and right. married into even more money. Yeah, he married into like like, like money money. Yeah, like I'm trying to think of a comparison like you know, he was a uh, I don't know, he had like a uh, He was Arnold Schwarzenegger and then he married into Bill Gates. The yeah. the Kennedys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I was trying to think of like a sports comparison, but that that works. <laughs> um so, yeah. we're, we're in politics, okay? We're, we're gonna talk about politics. That's that's true. Um, like this is this is a golden a golden ticket for him. Um, he's able to renovate Mount Vernon, uh, his estate that still survives. I, don't know. I feel like I feel like you're undercutting his story though, Georgie, of Georgie though, because like you're trying to sell like a fine. He 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 has a lot of money. He has power. He has everything, but. He's not seen as a British man, so I don't know why you're trying to <laughs> underplay his woes. His struggle, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's a that's a point well taken. I'm not even gonna like try to <laughs> <laughs> give something back to that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm actually, you know, I think that you're hitting what I'm trying to hit right now, where I'm going, I'm leaning into that kind of like, come on now, like it's not, it can't be that bad, right? Because, like I was about to say, you know, he renovates Mount Vernon, and this is like the mansion that he had that still still survives to this day. You know, if you went to D.C. in eighth grade, you probably visited it. But it's a he renovates it to an eleven thousand square foot mansion. You know, where he's able to you know host thousands of guests per year and woo powerful people with his kind treatment and generosity throughout his early adult life. Of course, you know. His newfound wealth and expansion of his plantation is accompanied by him adding hundreds of slaves to work on the land for their whole life. But like most of his peers, you know, he was a, a terrible hypocrite on this issue, you know, voicing opposition to slavery in private letters, but really never in public. And in most cases, doing much more harm than good to black people in this country during his political career. Speaking of his political career, Washington's newfound wealth and enthusiasm to showcase it along with his military service background, brought him the appeal needed to obtain elected office. He was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1759 and built a political brand of being, you know, a quietly loud troll of British taxation and regulatory laws over their more North American colonies for the next 15 years. I always say So quietly. Washington is one of the first trolls in, in American history? A little bit, yeah. Well, the thing is, is that he he was not like his voice was very low. Like he didn't he didn't have like a high volume voice at all, which is interesting for like the positions that he had. But yeah, he was like the one one of the first people to really like spearhead this anti-British movement of 
over taxation. You know, if you really want to have a better understanding of why the lead up to the Revolutionary War was an event that was able to gain momentum and eventually take place, Washington is a great case study to get more into the weeds on the causes for the war. And furthermore, it captures a clear idea of what he was actually like as a person, something that is hard to do for people who lived so long ago. You know, by now, it's clear that, you know, there are some general themes to Washington's character and motivations. You know, the guy really likes money. <laughs> he aspires to a life of being treated with, you know, this grand amount of respect and distinction. He doesn't want to be lowered here to anyone. And that especially includes those who served in the British government. He resented not being able to have more control of his destiny when it came to controlling the prices of the goods he produced out of his plantation. Um, you know, he even more so resented British government efforts to restrict wealthy colonials from purchasing more land obtained through wars like the French and Indian. To me, though, it's clear that a revolutionary movement in America gained traction because these powerful anti-British colonials like Washington you know, really just wanted to have their cake and, and eat it too. <laughs> the British government had a lot, had to spend a lot of money to protect colonial citizens from the French. And given that they were already being taxed at much lower rates than British citizens living in the UK, it seemed pretty justified that they could foot some of the bill to get the British economy back on track. The narrative among colonials, though, and spurred on by Washington, was that the British government viewed them, like I said, as second-class citizens. Hence, this was why they were getting hit with new taxes that were exclusive to just them. And when in truth, you know, guys like Washington just wanted to protect and keep building upon their wealth. You know, the act that Britain passed that pissed Washington off the most was the Royal, Pro the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which was an act that attempted to respect treaties Britain had made with Native Americans to not encroach upon any more of their lands. And so a line was drawn up west of the colonies that prohibited British colonials from attempting to settle or purchase land west of it. Washington was not cool with this because, believe it or not, this dude was one of the largest land speculators of his time. John didn't even know this. You know, if there was land available to purchase, he bought it. He could have formed like a, a pretty sizable country with all the land he owned. By the time of his death, he owned more than 70,000 acres in what today would be seven different states in the District of Columbia. Like it would like span across that many states of this. And that's according to Mount Vernon Gadot Gubbs, who I think is a reliable source on yeah. this map. <laughs> and so, like I said, they I, wouldn't be bad mouthing George. Uh, Georgie. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I, I George really wanted wealth and power. And when you observe the breakout of the revolution through the lens of this man, it's it's really hard to feel any sympathy for these guys. Our country was essentially founded on rich people's anger over taxation and too much regulation, which I guess it's fitting, but yeah. That's <laughs> it's very American. Yeah. But I feel we, like that's the only fucking thing we talk about. I'm just I'm gonna use that. <laughs> That fucking with a capital F because that's the only thing I fucking hear about in politics is how much how much I buy taxes. I want to keep everything. All right, all right. That's the only thing. Yeah, I mean we we tend to glorify the revolution not just through those those terms, but like it, it's hard to see 
much else outside of that being like a main contributing factor. I mean, like this was a, a rich man's war in like, I guess, instigating it in my, in, 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 in what I've, you know, researched here. And so, yeah, like I said, like before, when we were like, I, I, we've talked about taxation a couple of times, but it's just like the most unifying. I mean, I know like no American likes being taxed a lot. Right. But there is like a spectrum, but at the same time, I mean, most people would just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's like a weird thing in this country where like taxes for the most part are like frowned upon. <laughs> um, yeah, don't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> I mean, so, I get it, dude. I get when my when my property taxes went up. I was it was rough. They <laughs> luckily they came down this year, but nice. man, it was it was easily like I think it was like around three hundred bucks more a yeah. month, and I was about to storm the Capitol as well. So I get it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, um, so the pre-revolutionary war events unfold. Washington is selected as a delegate to the Continental Congress, and then again to the Second Continental Congress, and that's where he's named Commander in Chief of the Continental Army as the war starts. Not only for having a fair amount of experience in the British military, but also because. He was rich and influential in the largest and most influential colony in Virginia. Um, and so obviously he, he becomes a legend through this war. You know, for the somewhat pompous man I've built him up to be so far, he goes through some tough shit basically all throughout the conflict. You know, there were several points where the Continental Army looked on the brink of collapse. And and to his credit, he kept them going and Hold off the unthinkable for anyone living at the time. You know, this this kind of thing didn't happen. Colonial powers were hardly ever beaten back by their own colonists. And the conclusion of the war gives Washington, seemed to have always given him everything he wanted in life. You know, like overnight, he had a superhero status to him now. You know, how could anyone be more popular than the guy who pulled off the win in, you know, like the, the biggest David versus Goliath matchup? in history at the time, you know, no one in the U.S. would ever be able to match his reputation from that point forward through the rest of his life. And so what do you think of him so far? Like I said, I, I had no clue coming into this this recording who he was outside of the general, you know, that's mm -hmm. the only concept of George Washington, because even even when people talk about him being oh, this amazing person, they rarely if ever touch upon either his upbringing or his actual years in, in office. So the only thing that I know about him is just like he led the revolutionary war and he he's the founding one of the founding fathers and he's the reason why we're free and he <laughs> had fake teeth. That's the only yeah. thing people talk about. So yeah. so yeah I've I've just enjoyed the ride so far in terms of understanding this white man rage this this rich white man rage that led to a revolutionary war yeah so it it's really was about i guess i mean technically to give to give them like credit it, it is unfair to be heavily taxed because you are uh, seen less than which is hypocritical of plantation owners uh but i guess it's I mean, it's just wild, honestly, that that is the, but that's the reason why most, if not all wars happened, uh, at least back then, like, 
I don't want to. I want. I don't want to give you what's mine, and we're just going to fight for it. And that's essentially what's happening here. Very few are, unless it's like an actual revolution, like the French Revolution or the Haitian Revolution. Very rarely, it's like poor people getting tired of this bullshit that is being thrown upon them. More than likely, it's like people in power want to keep power, and they are going to fight yeah. for it. Power. their power right i mean mostly uh, yeah you're right like you know it's just like big nations having these epic wars against each other which is going to happen soon with napoleon after this point yeah no i mean that's why i decided not to put really any of the revolution in here just because i feel like you know we just hear about i mean like we just got fed that the whole time like growing up like battle of yorktown and you know how like he crossed uh like you know, the river on christmas to like you know surprise the british you know there's like all these i, I mean i want to give him his flowers in the sense like oh yeah like he, yeah obviously he deserves the flowers yeah but that's uh i just think that that's that's been overblown and again yeah. it's not really getting to know him as a person right um which is i think more what i like wanted to lean in towards um as we've gone on in this podcast right and so yeah that kind of summarizes his rise kind of gives a context into like what he was trying to achieve and ultimately he he does achieve it which you gotta give him that credit too and so you know washington is experiencing ultimate glory at the conclusion of revolutionary war and again deservedly so it was a long conflict that caused him constant uncertainty he had earned a return you know to the posh life that he envisioned for himself and even better, in a new country where his glorified status was cemented for life. You know, he could go back to Mount Vernon, continue to grow his personal land empire, and expand his wealth further into old age. Washington gets hit with a tough economic reality very quickly after he returns to Mount Vernon, though, as he couldn't escape the fact that he had become a failing businessman over the course of his time in the Revolutionary War. What? <laughs> his plantation ran out of deficit year after year for over a decade, from 1776 to 1787. Even as he tried to change the types of crops he grew that you know were more surefire and turning a profit, you know, being gone from running operations day to day for eight years, you know, definitely didn't help the situation. But at the same time, you know, running a plantation wasn't, I think, a real passion or strong skill set of his. He wasn't an economically savvy businessman. Really, none of the presidential founders were. You know, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, they all struggled financially. Yeah. And they, they, even as they lived luxurious lifestyles for the time, they were just, they were actually living way above their means and getting away with it. Um, When you die young and you're in power, you can do that. Yeah. Even, but I mean, like Jefferson lived really old, but he just, you know, being in debt his whole life, who was going to like, you know, say, kick Jefferson out of his home? You know, this just wasn't, I, I think he was, you know, people were, they were able to more so get away with it, I think. I mean, Madison actually had to suffer more for not having a lot of money at the end of his life, too. But yeah, you know, they had a natural talent and comfort for political leadership roles instead. And so leaving their businesses to thrive as political leaders became a logical path at a time when the country was in desperate need of leadership and cohesion. You know, this the country's final or sorry, the country's first years of true independence were an absolute disaster. The Articles of Confederation 
essentially left the country leadershipless, giving no power to the federal government to have any kind of enforcement over states for the bare necessities of running a nation, you know, like collecting taxes, maintaining national security, building new infrastructure. States didn't have to comply with anything the federal government requested of them. And so very quickly, multiple crises started to unfold in the 1780s as states essentially had to act as their own independent countries. Uh, you know, the economy was in disarray from the war and the safety net of the British economy was also gone. So as economic struggles started to grow for regular people, a growing threat of anarchy and chaos followed. And so Washington, to his credit, recognized the value now of a, a strong central government in being able to provide political stability and especially feared another large-scale rebellion that would make the entire effort of the revolution feel meaningless. Diplomatic leaders throughout the country called for a constitutional convention in 1787 after a rebellion occurred in western Massachusetts led by an ex-soldier in the Revolutionary War named Daniel Shays. This is known as Shays' Rebellion for everyone in the history class, you know, when Massachusetts requested help from the federal government to supply an army to bring down the rebellion, it had nothing to offer since it had no money it could collect to maintain any kind of fighting force or army. Wealthy merchants had to fund their own private army to bring the rebellion down, which finally got everyone kind of back to the drawing board as the Articles of Confederation gave no governing body the authority to stabilize a nation in the midst of a crisis. And so after going back and forth, Washington crucially decided to show support for the convention and represent Virginia as one of its delegates. This is where John Madison's Virginia plan gets introduced, which eventually is edited and developed into what we now know as the U.S. Constitution. And then Washington, again, he was relied upon to not write the Constitution or necessarily be the main arguer of its like points but more so to just bring the amount of delegates needed to get it over the finish line and ratified. He was the most, you know, uniting figure of the country along. And, and, you know, there's also the Federalist Papers as well. There are other influences too, but he was a very important one. While my attitude towards Washington earlier on in the episode kind of cast him as, you know, like an unstoppable force of trying to achieve the highest level of elitism in society, his journey to the top of that mountain ultimately was a, a central tool for Federalists to reach a compromise with Anti-Federalists, who still preferred a governmental system that was similar to the Articles. You know, without Washington's centralizing pull and hero reputation, the Union probably wouldn't have survived into the 19th century. Washington did more than anyone to scrape the nation together off of a limited fighting force and cohesion as a whole for united governance. And that was before he took on the ultimate role of his life, where he leaves his most significant legacy on the country. You know, the Constitution has seven articles that detail how the framers wanted to run, run the nation. And Article 2 has this new position that only one person serves in. It's especially complicated in the context of how distrustful Americans were to any strong central figure in government, but it ends up being one of those position, important positions in the world, worthy enough for you and I, Yusef, to spend <laughs> a glorious three years studying and talking about together, um, the office of the U.S. presidency, and of course, 
Washington is the standout, clear choice to take the position as he's the ultimate unifying figure in the country. When the Constitution was ratified, Washington was nominated to the presidency and, like you said earlier on here in the episode, unanimously elected first president of the United States by Electoral College. Sorry for the spoiler. <laughs> and so this is a big deal. Like, this is, um, like, we're, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we've, like, hit, like, I, I wanted that, that, that intro into, like, oh, we've, we've gotten to the presidency. It's like, we, we studied every president and now, like, we just kind of, like, went through, like, the whole birth of it in, like, a very short, like, summarized time span. <laughs> um, but to me, it kind of, yeah, it just kind of feels like, a, you know, we're, we're closing the whole loop now. <laughs> um, and now we have our first president, which I'm, you know, th- yeah, I think, I think that your, like, point that it's not talked about a whole lot is interesting because... There is, I mean, it is a pretty big, significant presidency, but given he is, like, the man who he is, like, yeah, most people still just think of him as, like, yeah, the, the fighting general, right? And yeah. I think that that's, that's a shame. Because, well, I mean, I think that, yeah, really you can learn more about him through his presidency more so than even that. In order to get a good understanding of, like, why, why Washington's president is significant and unique and different from every other president and like again just really really important to how we're all here today is that like this i mean the first the first of anything is essential because like it it sets a it sets a tone obviously you know it sets a a precedent of how this position is going to be carried out and how everyone else is going to understand what they can get away with as a president what they you know what they can push for like and also, like what, of course, what their limitations are. You know, what's going to really piss people off because they've never seen this before. Like the the first person who did this stuff, like you know, they, they he really had the ultimate responsibility of laying down a very crucial like framework for you know how to conduct this position responsibly, right? And that's like that's a very undervalued thing, I think, because especially given that the position and the country exists today. Um, and so I want to, you know, just give flowers to those precedents that he, he sets because in no way did he have to actually like do this. You know, he could have really took the position and made it much different than, than how we understood it. I mean, really back then, I mean, the, pre- the position obviously has developed and to be a, a lot more powerful over time and have, whole different set of responsibilities a little bit but still there's like some foundational stuff here that really survives to today so first thing being the two-term tradition right washington's voluntary decision to step down after two terms established you know this was really like unwritten like he didn't have to do this the constitution had no provisions in it that you know made him um have to step down at all um, and, you know, only FDR would ever serve more than two terms. And, and it underscored the importance of peaceful transitions of power and preventing the consolidation of executive authority. Honestly, that might be like the, one of the most important ones, you know, like especially in the 1790s, like transferring power peacefully was not something that was done lightly unless like a monarch died and someone in the royal bloodline like just you know that that was like a as peaceful as it got 
like to yeah. powerful successors. So it's a it's a novel accomplishment, you know, in being able to like have an election, especially off the back of like Washington's elections uncontested. Again, he could have just kept going and being uncontested, but like they had an election and then they he like helped the nation kind of just accept the results and move on to the next president. And we carried that tradition all the way until kind of you know, 2020. We had a bit of a hiccup. Well, not even a bit of a hiccup. We had a pretty big hiccup. <laughs> so don't worry. He, he, he's, he's much yeah, he's, better now. Yeah. You know, he was, you know, he was held accountable and we don't have this issue anymore. We, we survived, nope. right? <laughs> um, yeah. Everything is fine. The next precedent for the first president um, is the, you know, the authority um, that he kind of puts into the position as well, because, you know, the, especially coming off of the articles of, of confederation, like it, it made more sense, I think, at the time that a president would be very, very restrained on like, you know, how they would act and like what they would actually take the lead on, because, you know, anything that they did could be considered like an over an over like step of their power. Everybody was very sensitive to it. But he was especially, you know, um, like careful in like, a, but also like stood his ground on some very important issues. You know, for example, he handled this rebellion called the Whiskey Rebellion super, super well, um, where, you know, he had to, um, you know, enforce federal laws and maintain the union's integrity, basically through, you know, putting down a similar rebellion, the Shays Rebellion, and that, like, there was a whiskey tax that was presented in, uh, I think it was 1790. Um, yeah, why, why, why can't the government just leave alcohol alone, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I, it is... It is funny that it just like, yeah, these, I mean, I can understand why my people get especially upset here, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I say, it, as it, I take a sip of my bourbon. <laughs> oh, that's what that is. Yeah. I feel like I should have got a drink for the last episode here, but not the last episode. Yeah. The next episode I will. <laughs> um, but yeah, in 1791, I had like lost my, uh, you know, where I had my notes. Um, Congress passed an excise tax on whiskey distilleries. And so, um, you know, farmers, like, were not cool with that because they used their, you know, the excess grain that they grew, um, they distilled into alcohol. And that was like an extra commodity for them. You know, they could barter that, you know, for important, you know, things that they needed. And it was just a tool in their economic arsenal. And so when this tax gets passed, like, you know, protests erupt and turn violent. and you know, this this guy, um, James McFarlane, a Revolutionary War veteran, you know, clashed with troops who were trying to collect taxes off of him. And so, like, this is another, like, crisis that's similar to what happens before the Constitution's even ratified, right? Where, you know, who's going to put down this rebellion and how careful are we going to be about it? Like, it actually was really crucial that Washington didn't just, like, show brutal force and kind of grow a movement of like, okay, well, this is just like being ruled by the British, you know, they're just gonna ignore our concerns and essentially just, yeah, like tax us into oblivion and we're not gonna have any like say over this. And so 
you know, again, like Washington was careful. He sent out, you know, several kinds of like peace delegations to try to kind of calm the rebels down. And, you know, it took about like three years to kind of get this all settled down. But, you know, eventually after his like peace attempts were, you know, not taken seriously, he actually like led a whole army himself into like Western Pennsylvania to like show that he was serious. Like, he wasn't going to like play around with this, that like he had authority. The president actually had real authority to take action and like protect the country's national security. And, that, he, wasn't, like, and he wasn't the last president to rise into power. <laughs> Who was that? I actually blanking right now. The one that got the White House burned down. <laughs> was it was Madison? Yeah, I think so. I'll look yeah. it up. I'll, I'll delete this section. <laughs> no, it's just yeah, yes. just look stuff. It's okay. We're not perfect, guys. We we have to look stuff up too. Back then, again, they didn't really have like a the army was still very young and in, in its infancy, so it kind of made sense that like yeah, Washington he did this for so long in his life. Like yeah, I'm gonna go down there and yeah. show that this is a serious thing. And again, that like the whole the whole deal like with Washington's two terms is he had to just establish credibility and legitimacy. Not just like in domestically, but also abroad as well. Like just because they, you know, kicked England yeah. out. Boom. 1814, President James Madison was on the field of battle at Maryland when British troops overran American militia. Yeah, there you go. See, oh. I remember. Shoot. Wow. James Madison for you. And he's like a really short guy. I think he's like the shortest president. So that's like. <laughs> don't, don't tell that to DeSantis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, DeSantis would tower over him. So there's that at least. Like, I think, what is he, like five, eight, five, seven? I don't know what he is. <laughs> but I think Maz is five, four. Um, yeah, five, four. Yeah. So um, there's that whole part. But then, like, yeah, foreign policy wise, it's also a, a very tricky endeavor to make nations respect you. Especially, you know, the one that you kind of kicked out um, in a way that seemed unjust to them. So, like, Great Britain, when, you know, the U.S. started um, after the Articles and even, like, you know, as the Constitution is ratified, is, is really trying to undermine their efforts to, like, cement themselves as a real independent nation. You know, they're encouraging Native Americans to really, like, I think more, obviously, Native Americans should have a right to their own lands, right? But, you know, wild settlers, take, wild take. <laughs> as as settlers were still, you know, moving west to to settle on to lands that were again like west of that line that I had talked about earlier, um, they were attacked, right? And like it was again encouraged by the British, and so Washington, you know, kind of saw this problem of like, okay, we're gonna kind of fall apart as a nation if we don't establish some kind of credibility abroad as well, and so this is where the Jay Treaty comes in in 1794 he helps to build a diplomatic team um, with you know James Monroe leading the way of actually you know securing normal trade relations with Britain and at the same time a war is breaking out between Britain and France during his presidency and this is where we have the big beef between Jefferson and Hamilton among other issues but yeah I mean it, it, it's a lot to work out because the French helped Washington won the Revolutionary War, um, but at the same time, they were kind of a weak. I mean, they were they're in their revolutionary stage, so 
they're kind of they have weak credibility internationally. If, if the U.S. would have sided with France, that would have given motivation for Great Britain to then declare war on the U.S. And so, <laughs> so this is a very it could have been a brief stint where you know where it's a it's a colonized land again. Um, and it's Washington, it is it is funny though because that's like the second because we just mentioned James Madison, right? And James Madison kind of kind of wanted to flex on on Britain, and Britain was yeah. like, "No, we we can still squash you. Stop! Like we we don't care about this land, but don't 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 do it. Okay, don't do it." Yeah, I mean, it's and pretty they just thing took a piss on took a piss on the White House and left. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, um, I mean, thankfully, then, like, yeah, I think it was far lo- enough along where like it was going to be really really hard and arduous for Britain to actually do that. Like and take all of the U.S. again, but in the 1790s, I mean, it would have been much easier. <laughs> so, again, Washington wise wisely, even you know, as Jefferson, his Secretary of State, is urging him to side with the French. He, you know, kind of like you know, has a steady hand in decision making as president and brings the nation along in being able to have room to grow without having to worry about foreign actors trying to undermine, you know, the nation's progress. You know, I'm also wanting to talk about, you know, the cabinet system, right? Like we kind of like think about this as just like a standard thing today, but, you know, it didn't really need to happen. Congress did establish, you know, um, different agencies to start out. Like, you know, there would be like a state department, there would be a treasury department, you know, and they kind of laid this out, but you know, he didn't really need to take it upon himself to form these these groups of advisors to, you know, kind of help him like, have a team to make decisions. He could have just, you know, he could have acted as like a, you know, more of like a king, right? And just, you know, I know better than everyone. I'm just going to make the decision and I'm not going to bother to like, you know, have any, any kind of people in the room. I feel to, like, you know, he, he saw what he did with a plantation. I guess he was kind of afraid of what he would do with an entire country. <laughs> okay. But you know, I'm again. I'm I'm in the I'm in the lane of giving Miss Flowers. You said. <laughs> no, no, I I agree. I'm saying like he recognized he's not a great um, manager. Let's say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But he is a good manager. He just he needs people. You know, a good manager knows how to like take advice from you know. And again, like the people that he put in to give him advice had very diverse viewpoints. You know, they weren't diverse necessarily like in any much other ways other than like maybe like geographically in the, in the colonies but like he i mean he respected differing forms of opinion and honestly like yeah he tried to diversify his cabinet in that way which was really helpful to, again to making smart decisions and so he also yeah just again like really established the concept of federal supremacy and helped to establish it anyway with you know, giving courts legitimacy, um, you know, when he passed through, um, you know, like the the law in 1789 that established, you know, a Supreme Court. And, you know, we are now we have like, you know, our whole system today of like a, a strong judiciary, really, that kind of helps to, I mean, honestly, it might be the most powerful branch these days because like Congress <laughs> can't really do anything and the presidency is limited when they can't, you know, have laws that they want passed. And so, yeah, like he really is like building like again like the way he's like, conducting his presidency is building this framework of like really strong institutions, strong history. Again, like like they carry over into today. Of course, 
the things that he really, really sucks with, um, like a lot of presence in his um, in his cohort, is you know his you know, how he handles slavery because this you know the, when we're like you know founding the nation, this is a bit of I mean, this is the point where we could actually start well, right? Like the Civil War, 70, sorry, not 70. Uh, yeah, I don't, 70 I don't know. Ago. I don't know what you were expecting from a plantation owner, Neil. Okay. Okay. But, you know, allegedly, or like through his letter, I mean, he actually. A bad plantation owner, but still a plantation. Yeah. Okay. But. What I'm trying to I'm trying to stress right now that this is like a, a choice that the nation sure. the nation doesn't have to have slavery right like again they're starting anew they're building this constitution up and there were two anti-slavery positions <clears throat> presented to Congress in 1790 you know in response to that of course southern states were ticked off and threatening war if they were seriously considered and so you know instead of trying those to pesky make sell, those best pesky southern states huh <laughs> yeah since yeah. the beginning well you know washington being you know a, a southerner and like representing that kind of yeah you know those attitudes unfortunately and so yeah he i've always found it weird that virginia is considered you know southern i don't know why yeah the same actually same because they don't really seem southern today right no not at all like they're a blue state <laughs> not to say that southern states are all like red states necessarily, but they seem like a, I don't know. Seem Maybe it's yeah, a, so they seem more east, at least in my head, east coast, not yeah. southern. Yeah, like very rich, you know, I feel like, yeah. I, I think of like people. And, and if you didn't know, it's for lovers. <laughs> That's such yeah. a dumb one. I don't know, I, I never understood that driving in the state, like why. <laughs> Virginia why <I> <laughs> is for lovers. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, in response to these anti-slavery petitions, Washington and Congress responds with a bunch of racist measures, right? Naturalization, you know, the process of becoming a citizen in the U.S. was completely denied to black immigrants among, you know, other ethnicities as well and women. Um, you know, the Slave states were admitted into the Union, the state of Tennessee, um, and the state of Kentucky during Washington's presidencies. He also, the, the, the worst one probably of all, well, it's hard to rank them, right? They're all bad. Um, Washington signed a Fugitive Slave Act, which, you know, overrode all state laws and courts, um, allowing agents to cross state lines to return escaped slaves. This was a problem, not only because it's just like, you know, horrible law, but you know, people abuse this law further by taking free black people in the north and essentially just, you know, doing a bounty hunting and, and kidnapping and claiming that they were former slaves when they weren't. And so this became common after the Future Slave Act was passed. Like all the other founders, this is like a grand stain on his legacy. At the same time, I mean, he did there I mean, just a try to like have some kind of not positive spin, but like something that he didn't do that was horrible was he signed a reenactment of the Northwest Ordinance in 1789 and that freed all slaves brought after 1787 into the federal territory north of the Ohio River, um, except for slaves escaping from slave states. And so, yeah, this new territory in Ohio 
essentially any slave that was living there uh, who were brought in after 1787 uh, was then free. And so the law lapsed. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of his legacy there, um, you know, in terms of dealing with the issue of slavery. You know, he, he was a little bit he was actually much more respectful to Native Americans, even though, you know, his administration still delivered their continued like push out of their lands and more further west. I mean, he actually did try to keep settlers from going into their lands and, you know, getting into like violent altercations because that meant that he had to then build an army and like try to protect his countrymen because he would be unpopular if he didn't do that. But honestly, like he hated the settlers who provoked these, you know, these responses from Native Americans because he wanted to have some semblance of protection for them over the land that they had in the Ohio Valley region and had grown a lot of respect because, you know, he had a lot of diplomatic relations throughout his career with Native Americans who helped, you know, fight in the French and Indian War. They helped fight in American revolutionary battles and they were promised, you know, land. And I think, you know, Washington genuinely wanted to deliver for them after, you know, again, like having this whole career of, you know, working with them in a lot of ways. And so there was more respect there than, you know, especially later presidents like Jackson and and so on, you know. Um, And so, yeah, he has a, a complicated history with Native Americans and a complicated legacy. Like his his presidency, like I, the thing is, is like when we went into like all the other founding presidents, like I did this whole, I think, big journey with Monroe and I did this big journey with Madison and like, you know, kind of just a lot of what they did was overlapping with George Washington's presidency. And so we've covered a lot of his presidency already, which is kind of funny, um, which is why I didn't really expand much on the Jay Treaty and things like that. But this it, was, is, it was inevitable, right? When when all those big figures were working at the same time, all of them trying to create the, the country that is today, obviously much is attributed to to Washington, but most, if not all, was like this big brain trust that was created between all of them, um, including Hamilton, that we haven't mentioned mm-hmm. much. Um, all those big ideas and all those checks yeah. and balances were, you know, a uh, 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 working effort. And it, it it did take a man like Washington to be like, yes, even though I'm the one in power right now, yes, I agree that where it comes after me should have all these checks and balances um attached to him yeah and i mean that's another point is that like even though like he started i I went like you know he started his like political career being this like anti-regulation troll like i said but you know he eventually comes around to embracing like a very like strong centralized government like and and embracing hamilton's ideas over jefferson's in that in in that sense and like again like bringing stability i think that if he would have went full on like Jefferson in like if Jefferson were the first president oh yeah I don't, no. I don't think that we would have fared very well for that long you know um, no no we we do owe a lot of you know even though he he's not a great rapper we do owe a lot to Hamilton um in terms of being the counterbalance um inside of that group for sure and and winning over Washington right yeah I mean both of them like they it was important that they were like you know it, friends and extremely close in that sense and like partners in this administration because otherwise again like 
this is just all very uh, like gentle territory of having to get this right whenever you start something new. And again, you're trying to just establish yourself. You know, like many nations, again, when they're brand new, when they when they win independence from colonies in like the 1950s, you think about countries like, you know, India, you think about, you know, a lot of like African countries, um, you know, like Rwanda and, um, you know, Angola. And like, you know, just like there's really, really hard in the first, you know, couple decades for, you know, them to get any kind of footing because it it's it's hard to like have this anyone respects, you know, the authority that's like brand new. Right. And like everyone's just trying to understand what's going on. Like Washington handles this like without really any kind of violence breaking out without really like any kind of, yeah, like unsteady, like despair, any kind of economic depression. Like he does a really good job of being like a careful decision maker and giving Hamilton the trust to reform the whole economy so that, you know, again, like it's, it's, pretty quick that the u.s is just like kind of like a they're not like a power of any sort but they're definitely you know not going anywhere after washington's presidency like he almost actually i mean his intention was not to run again in 1792 he wanted to be done he did his due diligence with like you know kind of again setting precedents and you know they established a national bank that was a big thing like he felt like he had like done his thing and he like was ready to pass on the torch and like his advisors told him, like, look, like, you can't, you can't retire just yet because, you know, we ha- are about to have a foreign war break out and the nation has never gone through this. There's still too many precedents that have not been set where we're going to fall apart real quick. And that probably is, was true. And to his credit, he stayed. And so one of the last precedents I want to talk about is farewell address, which I think like today it's not as, um, glorified maybe as it once was you know if you think about someone like eisenhower who really had like a very profound farewell address when he his whole presidency (laughs) conducted these covert operations and then (laughs) just told the whole told all of like the american people essentially that like hey um yeah this this is happening and it's like a pretty bad thing (laughs) Um, (laughs) but i mean i did it but you know super bad (laughs) right right um it's kind of my idea, but this is bad. Yeah, like Washington, you know, does a farewell address, which has been followed up by every president since. And, you know, it kind of it, it helps with the transition of power piece. Right. You know, it, it it kind of like summarizes like his his tenure of, you know, offering advice on like, you know, his takeaways from his experience in the office. You know what you know, what's happening in foreign policy you know, promoting national unity, you know, trying to get people to stop being so divided. And like, he was, of course, was not a political party guy, but he was seeing how people were fracturing the political parties around him. And he felt like even him as like the most unifying figure, like really couldn't stop it. Like he saw, he saw like, you know, the the two party system being a really huge problem, like right from the outset. This, I mean, his farewell address was received very well. and. Again, like it was, it, it's glorified into you know like continued existence today. Where, like, I think it is, I think it is helpful for people to know, like, you know, you, everyone. Ha- I mean, for the most part, maybe like sixty-five percent of people would participate in an election. Like, you want to know, kind of like the person who you elected, like, 
what they are concerned with as they leave. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a very unique insight. Um, and so that's, again, like something that we all can appreciate about Washington and just having these like really, I think, thoughtful and insightful like ideas of, of how to be like, you know, how, how to like really keep a democratic tradition. There's also like he as president, he he really like he could have been called your highness or your excellency or like some kind of variation where it gives him like a monarchical kind of like title. Um, and he resisted all of that. Like there was a, I don't know if you ever watched like the documentary, not documentary, like the show Adams. It's like Paul Giamatti who's playing him. But like, no, I've always actually wanted to see it. I prefer. Yeah. Yeah. But they have a really great scene in there where he, um, is like trying to call the president. He's trying to call George Washington that. And like the dude just like shits on him, like in front of every, like all of their colleagues for like trying to like push his excellency, excellency onto Washington. So I don't know how, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that that show tried to really be as truthful as it could to the, to the characters in it. But yeah, Washington didn't want anything to do with like any kind of King bullshit, which is incredibly important again like i have you have to give him his respect for that i I think you know someone who exiting his presidency he probably had easily top five most most difficult kind of like set of like tasks to try to get right i mean arguably he had like the most difficult presidency because it was all on him to like make it a legitimate institution and to start traditions that would be respected and carry on and he accomplished that um and so he goes into retirement of course like loved like he was coming out of the revolutionary war and you know this is like the part that really is like tragic is that like he's still relatively young when he leaves office all these guys like i was saying like adams and washington do you remember like how they they live into um the like their 80s easily but do you remember like when they die exactly I think we had this like in the first Adams episodes. That's about Matthew. Yeah, we we talked about it. Don't they die like at the same time? Those other two. Yeah, Adams and Jefferson die uh, at the same time. But do you know, like, do you remember what date they die on? No. <laughs> July fourth, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Independence. Fifty day, years yeah. after the Declaration. I mean, that's kind of like poetic. I mean, more than poetic. That's just weird. <laughs> that's an yeah, weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Don't tip it. Fun, uh, fun, fun uh, trivia night question for you guys right there. Yeah, yeah. Guess who doesn't get a uh, a magical death? <laughs> George Washington. <laughs> this, unfortunately, I mean, this is just kind of like the, the medical technology of the day. But I don't know. He, like, I think in 1799, he's 67 years old. Still doing fine. He's at Mount Vernon. Uh, he's kind of bored, honestly, with the post-presidency life. Like, he's... He's still doing his plantation thing and like trying to build his wealth in that way. And apparently he's like kind of going through a, a stage where he's trying to like he knows he has all these slaves and he wants to actually treat them with like more respect than other slave owners would. Right. And like make sure they don't get separated from their families, make sure they're not they can't be sold away or anything after he's gone. So he's like trying to make these preparations and People try to make this argument like, well, he's actually a good guy in that sense. Like he like was ahead of his time and naturally like thinking about these people as like people in some sense, um, which again, low bar, very low bar. 
but there's that. He wanted and, his property to be happy. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's, again, like, nothing, like, I mean, he's still kind of being um, consulted with what's happening by, you know, with Adams and whatnot, and, like, Hamilton is keeping him in the loop of, like, okay, like, Adams is kind of a shit president, like, you know, what what should we do, that kind of thing. And Washington just, you know, on this random day, this is how, like, deaths could happen real quick. I mean, I guess that it can happen real quick, but this is even, like, you know, just even more shocking. He just goes and, like, on horseback, leaves his house for, like, a daily ride, um, and it just snows. Like, it just, just starts to, like, kind of, like, precipitation, like, rolls in while he's out, like, away from his home. And so he gets back, and instead of, like, changing from and being in soaking wet clothes, uh, he decides to just, like, stay in them as he's, like, hosting somebody, I think. And so the next night, he wakes up his wife, uh, Martha, and says he has trouble breathing. Um, so he's just essentially he's developing pneumonia, right? But you can survive pneumonia. Problem is, is you can't survive pneumonia when you have doctors bleeding you out. <laughs> like oh, the leeching. I think he was bled like four different times <laughs> to try to to care what's going on with him. So leeching back then was such a big. That's why I. I know I'm. Uh, I come across as a very cynical thing, uh, person, but every time a new thing comes around, I, I I always give it like a five year window before I even try or even even address like a medical, it. Medical, yeah, a medical break. Any <laughs> anything, any any like any new device, any new trend. Like think about the the curve, the the 3D TV, for example, or the curved TVs, or any new things. That I like. Oh wait. I'll see what's, what's okay. the vapes are now like super worse than cigarettes. Like it's just every yeah. time something new comes around, you have to, you don't, you don't want to think about all the people that got hair plugs in the eighties. Like they looked horrible. Now <laughs> hair plugs are kind of okay, but you should have yeah. waited. You should have waited those five to 10 years before. Yeah. You don't want to be the guinea pig on this stuff. For sure. No, I do remember in high school, it like I never tried vaping, but like I would see people just do it like in the hallways, and it seemed like it was super safe. Like it was just like, oh yeah, there's yeah, she's like, there. <laughs> yeah, and like disappeared. Um, yeah, no, that's I mean, fair, fair, especially to yeah, like those kinds of products. He just starts getting bled out by these doctors, and they like just kill him off super quickly where he i mean being this legendary figure who does so much for this country he dies in a, just a super painful suffering kind of way where he just yeah within the course of two days he's just losing blood and again like dying slowly like this isn't like a quick thing like he just like they don't know what to do for him and so they just make it a whole lot worse obviously one of the most celebrated presidents of all time and i think Super fitting to end the podcast on, um, because if you, if you want an ideal president, like other than obviously like the context of his time of him just being very very horribly bad with ta- any kind of like subject on equality outside of like white men, like he does as like a leader most things very right or like exceeds expectations beyond what anyone thought this nation was going to be like globally even domestically probably like. He, I mean, he's pretty good. He's pretty good at being president. And that's, I, I feel like 
yeah, like that's a nice way to to kind of cap this all off. <laughs> yeah. What do you it's think? Pretty good. Um, <laughs> that's our notes on George Washington. He's uh, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Uh, this has been a labor of love. Um, yeah, no, I don't know, Neil. How do you, how do you feel about George Washington? Uh, I, I you usually throw it to me, but given that this is the last episode, this is your last research. Mm-hmm. Now, next uh, next episode is just you compiling your list. So there's no research needed. Yeah, but I feel like we got to answer questions like, uh, you know, what was your favorite episode? And what was your least favorite episode? Or like, who, you know, like we got, I'm going to throw in some just like, sure. you know, some stuff like that in there. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do some uh, post uh, pre-production notes. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. the last episode. So like, you know, sure. questions to prepare for. Yeah. Um, because, you know, what I love is uh, homework. Homework. I miss homework. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, but yeah, this is your last episode, right? This is the last time you are going to Google um, <laughs> President XYZ President. Yeah. And this is the last time you're going to listen to a podcast or view a video on, on a president to prepare your thoughts and notes. So do you feel it's... So I, I'll ask you a couple of questions, actually, since this is the last episode. I don't want it to be just like... All right, let's go to Teddy versus Washington. Um, do you feel you made the right decision in leaving Washington for last, or you would have wished a different pre- president to be last? Um, no, I, I really think that this is a fitting. And yeah, I agree. I, yeah, like it, he, uh, like I didn't want to end on a cynical note. I think like that. That's like kind of where I started out this episode because. Even as, like, there have been good presidents, because we saved a lot of, like, you know, legendary presidents for this last season, like, I still, like, you know, like, yeah, like, over time, again, I, I tried to speak to just, like, maybe it's just, like, culture around me, and, like, I, I'm just viewing the world through some of a pessimistic lens right now, but, like... Yeah, I'm sorry I'm rubbing off on you too much. No, no, I think that it's, like... It's three years, just, Neil, three years of me on your head, like, three... <laughs> Now maybe like now that that podcast is over, you you can't you can't gain back that uh, optimistic view. Now that you don't have to listen to me that often. Uh, I think that um, it's, it'll carry forward in in you know overarching ways. But I mean, in my personal life, I try to still stay optimistic all the time. So but, so yeah. uh, do you feel that is he a good president because the nation is so young? And the the pitfalls that many of the presidents fell, especially in the latter years, like the Regans and the and the Clintons, like those uh, monetary pitfalls and those political trappings that bind people going up the ladder, like the favors, the 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 packs, the the yeah. fundings all those stuff that really influenced um, people's way of viewing a president. Do you think Washington is okay or good as a president because he doesn't have those trappings? Yeah, well, no, because, I, I mean, yeah, like Clinton and Reagan, much more limited in how they can conduct the office, right? But mm. I think that he has he has harder things to deal with than them, right? So, like, 
yeah, he could. He definitely has the freedom to do what to, to kind of do what he wants. Um, but do you think he had the freedom to do whatever he wants, or yeah, do you think yeah, I mean, he like, had the he had the mentality of a because the the reason why I'm asking all this stuff is like I feel like he treated the presidency as a general, and and when you're inside of an army, you cannot lead the entire army by yourself. You have people that you delegate to, right. and you have people that have specialties. Um, so that's why I, 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 it was interesting to hear that, oh, people wanted him to be a king, but he was never a king. So he kind of viewed pre the presidency, at least in my in my eyes, as, as, a, as an army general. And that's why he had the cabinet. So he those people were going to decide this. And he had the secretaries and the, yeah. and the vice presidents and all that stuff because he viewed the nation as he, he, I think he was still in that general mentality that I need to delegate because it's too, too broad for me to have my pot, my hand in every single cookie jar. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why generals tend to be a, a effective presidents too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just him, like Eisenhower, very effective president. Um, I mean, Jackson, not, I mean, not a great president for other reasons, but he was effective, definitely effective. Um, so yeah. I think the, yeah, he, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. He didn't ever, he wasn't naive enough ever to think that he knew better than anyone. If he wasn't the true expert on the, on the matter, like he was the expert at war. That's probably why he, again, he rode over to quell out that rebellion. because like he knew what he was doing, but like he, he was humble at least like, again, like when I, when I talked earlier in the podcast about, he didn't seem like a very humble person, but he truly was like, In terms of when it came to like these top decisions, like he wasn't gonna leave it up to him be like being a narcissist about anything, which again, like incredibly important and like really unique in presidents because I think Reagan and Clinton had a great deal of narcissism in them, and Washington yeah. really didn't. Like that's what you want. A, I mean, at yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and Jefferson had it too, and and. Yes. And um, I mean, most presidents do. I, I mean, again, there's very few examples that you could. I mean, I don't think Grant was narcissistic, no. narcissistic, and I don't think Eisenhower was either. And I think that's the trend that you've probably seen in my rankings is that like I view those presidents pretty high on this list because they were humble, in my opinion. Taft was humble too. Yeah, I think just Taft, Teddy just really fucked Taft up, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, man, just Teddy. Tell, Getting around it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I. So I, I guess my last question would be: outside of Washington, who who in that group you would have picked to be the first president, and how would that shape the nation? Uh, uh like, would have been better or the same? Oh gosh. Um. <sighs> I think it's an I think easy it, answer. I, I think no. I think it would have been worse, no matter who you picked. I think that he, anybody you picked outside of Washington, really? the nation probably wouldn't have survived. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick, you wouldn't have picked Hamilton. No, I think Hamilton was too narcissistic. I think he's mm -hmm. he's brilliant mind, but he he would have just thought he knew better on issues that he didn't. I think the per, the person who could have maybe done okay but not good is Adams. Adams wasn't narcissistic to me, but he definitely just. I think he had the opposite problem where he didn't have enough confidence in himself to know if he was really like making the right decision. Once he finally had everybody kind of give him the info he needed, he just, 
he was a very insecure guy. So in, in some ways anyway. And so like, that's why, like, I think he would have respected the presidency, established good precedents, but he would have not been, I don't think that the, anybody would have held him as a very legitimate figure, especially foreign policy wise. Like, you know, Great Britain didn't respect Adams, like they respected Washington and, and so on, you know? So you needed this commanding, this like guy who you couldn't, you couldn't under, like no one could ever like say that like, you know, they should be more respected in Washington. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what you need for someone who's like doing this kind of work. Like that's so essential to to being a first president of so a you, nation. You, so you truly feel like the, the, this is one of the rare instances in where it seems like the right, like, the right <laughs> guy at the right time or the right yes. person at the right time. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't see any other president really doing as well in, in any time period, really, to be honest. <laughs> All right, so I guess the time has come. Yeah. Uh, the last time I'm going to do this to Neil. Uh, Neil, it's time for everybody's favorite time of the podcast. Every time I walk down the street, people stop me and ask me, <laughs> can you please make Neil pick his favorite president of all time legally binding? Um, last time around, Teddy Roosevelt took down the great emancipator, just destroyed him, put him in a half Nelson off the top of the ropes, knocked him out. It wasn't even a competition. But now it seems that Teddy is in the jungle, deep in the jungle, and he doesn't have a good way out because good old Georgie is in the jungle hunting him down. So... Neil, is Georgie gonna be your favorite president of all time, legally binding? I'm I'm gonna miss hearing you do that. This is so so terrific. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I I feel like every a lot of the times that we've done this, I've like like had some struggle, and I've had, like it's sometimes just been incoherently me just going back and forth in my head or something. Um, and unfortunately for this one, like it's actually pretty simple. Uh, I. It, and very in George's camp that uh, he is the best president. Wow. <laughs> I I honestly saw that coming. Um, it's kind of hard to beat the OG, right? Right. When you're the one that sets the precedence, and you don't have that much of a smear on you as a president. I saw the normal pitfalls that pretty much all of them fell through in terms of like, hey, you're kind of racist, and hey, you killed Native Americans. Which are horrible, horrible things that should not be swept under the rug. But unfortunately, after doing sixty episodes of hearing the same thing, you kind of yeah, feel like yeah, I understand. That's a great. That's a great point. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So yeah, there you go. Teddy. Teddy defended his crown. He was one of the best presidents of all time. But unfortunately, he is not Neil's favorite president of all time, legally binding. George Washington is. And there you go. That's the tournament. The tournament is over. The 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 yeah. the conclusion is that the first your first is always the best, you know? You, <laughs> you don't forget your first, Neil. That's correct. As they say. Um <laughs> but yeah, there you go. Uh so next time around, uh, we won't say our goodbyes today. We won't go down memory road today. This is just a normal episode this is just a season finale like any other but next episode now that georgie is declared 
the best president of all time, legally binding, through the tournament that we had. Next episode, Neil is actually going to write down his list. Mm. So Georgie technically could not be first in that one. It just so happens that through order of episodes, Georgie ended up being the best president in the head-to-head matchups. But now Neil's going to sit down with all the presidents in front of him, and he's going to go 1, 2, 43, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because we're not touching, we're not touching the the old guys. Um, I thought about it, but no, I'm not gonna. I, maybe no, I we're not touching them. We're no, not. Let's not do it. Let's not do it. Yeah. So we're going one to forty three because those are the only people that we actually discussed, we dissected, we we talked about, we made fun of, we gave them fun nicknames. My favorite still being oh, either no. uh, Chester Sheeta or good... uh, do I? I knew you were going to say uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dwight D, not LGBT. <laughs> that's the first time I said that. But. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's my favorite. I think that's my favorite. Uh, Dwight D, not LGBT. Uh, so, yeah, so 1 through 43, we're going to see who is the actual, in, in Neil's eyes, yeah. Pound for pound, best president of all time. But we don't know who's very last, too, so that's an exciting one. And who's going to be very last. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll do my list as well, but I'm just going to say my last 10 and my top 10. The, okay. Anybody in the middle, nobody gives a fuck, especially <laughs> from me. Um, but Neil's going to give his legit 1 through 43. And like Neil said, we're going to talk about just, you know, a post-mortem. That's what they call it. Yeah. Just uh, now that the podcast is done, we're we're gonna go through, you know, what we learned, uh, favorite episodes, yeah. episodes that we wish we could do again, maybe, or like yeah, we would have done differently. Good talking. Uh, stuff like that. So yeah, this like I always say, this this was a labor of love to the fifty to a hundred people, one hundred and fifty ish that have listened to this podcast, and maybe if you're in your future, in the future, and this this random podcast exploded for some reason <laughs> and and now you're still listening to ramblings of a of two white passing men talking <laughs> about white men in history um thank you for listening it's it was, honestly it's been fun yeah i've learned a lot and my cynicism has grown exponentially and 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 my greatest feat in life has been that neil has joined me in the dark side. <laughs> I, uh, I am Palpatine and he is Anakin. <laughs> Eventually he's going to throw me through a shoot, but we're still in the, we're still in the revenge sit phase. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're yeah, having we're the, fun. We have at least 40 fun. years now. We have <laughs> 40 years, 20 ish years more to come before he throws me down the shoot. Yeah. And we're going to rule. We're going to rule the empire. For yeah. We're going to rule, man. <laughs> we're going to have fun. It's not about it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Okay. That's right. I know I'm gonna die in the end of this journey, but I'm gonna have fun in the way. That's wow. What a I mean, I, if I I would go to your church, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just know that the only way to get into the building is by swiping a credit card. That's, <laughs> that's how my got to do that. <laughs> that's how my church works. All right. So uh, we'll see you in two weeks, definitely. Uh, sorry that the past two, that, that this episode took a little bit 
life is in the way. Uh, but the next episode is definitely going to be in two weeks, and we're going to finish it off. And and uh, thank you, thank you for everything. And I'll uh, see you in two weeks. Bye. Thank you.